Hello, welcome to the RevDem podcast. Our guest today is Alberto Alemano, who happens, in fact, to be our first guest uh, back in January 2021, when nobody knew about, about the RevDem. Uh, this time, uh, RevDem is, is already a sort of an established brand. That's at least what, what we're hoping for. And uh, we are very grateful that you were with us uh, then, uh, almost one year ago, and that you are with us now. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michal. Nice to be back. Uh, Alberto is Jean Monnet Professor in European Union Law and Policy and one of the leading voices on the democratization of the European Union. His research has been centered on how the law may be used to improve people's lives, in particular through the adoption of power shifting reforms, countering social, economic and political inequalities within European societies and beyond. He has written extensively on risk regulation, public health, consumer rights, food policy, uh, as democratic innovation, as well as democratic innovation and participatory democracy. He's a regular contributor to various media outlets. Uh, he's author of, of numerous uh, publications that I will not uh, list because we don't have that much time for it. We, we want to use it for, for a discussion. Um, I forgot to say, and I will add that, that, that uh, um, Alberto works at HEC in, in Paris. He's a professor of law there. Um, if I may now move, because the, the, the subject of our conversation will be one of his um, academic interests at the moment, meaning the Conference on the Future of Europe. Uh, we are now pretty advanced when it comes to the work of this conference, but uh, many people in Europe don't know much about it. So first, Alberto, if I may ask you, what's the Conference on the Future of Europe? Uh, the Conference on the Future of Europe uh, dates uh, back uh, to the uh, days before the, the last European elections in 2019, when President Macron decided to publish a, a fully sync op-ed uh, all across Europe by basically translating his integrationist version for Europe. And this idea was then picked up by Ursula von der Leyen, when she was designated um, uh, in a pretty surprising uh, set of circumstances as a possible solution to her original sin. The fact of having been designated by the European Council without actually running for the European Parliament, not being a Spitzen candidate. And then she basically said, well, this is not going to happen again, because next time in 2024, we're going to fix the rules of the game clearly. And we're going to define exactly what the Lisbon Treaty means when discussing or referring to the idea of parliamentarizing the European Union. That means linking uh, the actual act of uh, casting the ballot vote and the political color of the European Commission. So it's a remedy to that, but it's much more. Uh, it is um, opportunity for a select group of citizens uh, to actually give a say uh, to European political leaders, both at the European and the national level, who are mixed up in the so-called plenary, and to formulate this set of recommendations uh, to the European leaders uh, who by the end of the spring 2022 will need to position themselves on those recommendations. And so, so, so what is the structure of, of, of the conference, if I may ask? We heard about some assemblies, some, uh, uh, the, the, of course, the, the leaders from, from various institutions, but it's not clear for many of our uh, listeners. If you could help us to, to, to have an idea about the structure of, of, of the conference. The structure of the conference can be seen as a pyramid, at the bottom, we have this uh, platform, multilingual platform, which is digital by nature, where every citizen, uh, every resident of the union can actually share ideas. 
uh, based on one of the nine teams uh, ranging from uh, social justice, economic, uh, human rights, environmental issues, all the way to democracy and the rule of law with a residual category. And those ideas are basically setting the agenda for the second level of the pyramid, which is represented by the so-called citizens panels made of 800 citizens randomly selected and coming from around, or all around Europe. And then their recommendations feed uh, the tip of the uh, pyramid, which is represented by the plenary, which is made by more than 450 individuals coming from some representatives of the citizens' panels, some members of the European Parliament, same number of national parliamentarians and civil society organizations and various interest groups that have been selected there. This is the structure. The, the conference started in, in May this year, if I'm not mistaken. So, so we are already uh, half a year after, after its launch. If I may ask you, what happened until, uh, until now? Well, the Conference of the Future of Europe was supposedly had to be launched on May the 9th, uh, 2019, and last for two years. This didn't happen for a variety of reasons, mainly two, interinstitutional skirmishes. There was no agreement among the three institutions. It was not necessarily a clear political majority among the member states regarding the opportunity to have this. And there was COVID as well. So how to actually make this happen uh, on, online. Uh, and then this uh, extra year, uh, which basically led the European Commission and the other institutions and the member states to rethink about the process led to the launch on May the 9th, 2020. So now it's basically six months that the conference is up and running. And we are at a crucial moment because the final round of the citizens panels is actually taking place now, between now and January, 2022. And by early February, we might have all the recommendations coming from the citizens panel out and therefore the plenary, meaning the political level mixed with the citizens will have to position themselves on those recommendations in particular, in these days, we see the first batch of recommendations ever be produced uh, by the citizens in the panel, so-called panel two, working on democracy and the rule of law, which has been the first panel this time to gather in Florence at the European University Institute. And we saw 42 recommendations emerging uh, out of these three weekends through which uh, citizens had the chance to go through and to discuss and put forward many ideas, what we have called orientations uh, which have now been translated into actual recommendations adopted uh, by the citizens themselves with a threshold of 70%. So you, had, you need 70% of the citizens forming a panel uh, to actually vote in favor of those, those recommendations in order to uphold them. This was needed because most of these recommendations were developed by streams. There were five streams and each stream was divided in subgroups. So to give the chance to everybody to actually own those recommendations, there was actually a vote, which is a bit of an anomaly in deliberative processes because deliberation usually does not necessarily require voting. It's more about identifying the arguments in favor against a particular idea, but not necessarily voting. But on those instances, it was decided methodologically to put to a vote these recommendations. So the methodology that shape up in this first uh, of the last panels uh, is actually very solid and seems to be uh, also to be perpetuated in the next panels to come.
So if one looks at the at these conclusions uh, that you posted on, on on Twitter, and I guess they they, they will be online at, at at some point officially, uh, one can have an impression that this is a, this was a meeting of the of the European Federalists or a, 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 or a very pro-European group. Um, so so it, it, is it the case that the uh, that the citizens who were uh, who were chosen were just you know by accident very pro-European or was it deliberation that that produced this kind of pro-European feelings? Uh, how was the integrity of the process of this process secured? Well, I'm speaking here as a researcher, but also as an observer uh, to the conference in the future of Europe, in particular to the citizen panel, democracy, and the rule of law, and also an expert. I've been providing. Uh, some presentations, some element during the second session. And in Florence, uh, the role of the experts was very minor. We were not entitled to speak to the citizens um, during the sessions. And the overall deliberation took place under the lead of facilitators. So the facilitators who are by definition not experts in the matter really managed to engage uh, the citizens to discuss about issues that affect uh, uh, their, their daily life. And to do so with citizens who actually don't really have a transnational experience of life, because being this group quite representative of uh, European civil society and citizenry, uh, you could experience uh, that these uh, individuals actually were not used to speak in public, they were not used to talk about Europe, and they were not even used to use an interpreter and therefore to listen to their own voice. So it wasn't super easy. But this tells a lot about the genuine nature of the exercise. I think if one's uh, understand that this obviously is a pretty much pre-framed European sponsor exercise um, that is led by the European institutions, uh, this transnational space uh, actually was created uh, by relying on citizens who are pretty ordinary, meaning they are average citizens. I met professionals working uh, for big corporations, but I also met pensioners, um, a bunch of young people, mainly students, but also um, uh, workers uh, who, were, who are below 25 because one quarter of the group is below 25. And the overall uh, process, I think, was, was sound. Um, obviously, uh, we need to understand that this transnational uh, deliberative exercise is quite new, uh, meaning that it is the first time in which we have uh, such a wide a mini public uh, in terms of volumes, in terms of number of issues covered. So probably the level of deliberation was not as intensive as it has been in Ireland or as it has been during the climate convention in France due to technical methodological reasons also linked to multilingualism. But overall, I would say the integrity of the process is pretty, is pretty high, is pretty sound. Um, again, we also have to consider that uh, the timing for selecting those citizens was, was limited. Uh, so the uh, methodology used, as far as we know, we don't really have full publicity on this, is to basically rely on the telephone book uh, of Europeans uh, and to identify 800 plus um, uh, holder of those numbers, to call them up 
and to actually invite them uh, to show up uh, in two weekends uh, in different cities of Europe. The first Strasbourg and the second one might have been Dublin, might have been Warsaw, uh, might have been Florence, and, and, and basically asking those citizens whether they wanted to come. So some people said no, we don't know which is the percentage of people who turned down the invitation. But what I can tell you based on more than 20 years of European affairs experience is that I never seen uh, such a diverse group of people talking about Europe. Uh, so this might sound anecdotal, but I think it's a good, um, it gives you a good idea of the fact that the process was certainly more inclusive than in the past, with a few uh, possibly um, caveats, in particular one, the fact that uh, there was basically few minorities, um, there were very few uh, people coming from disabled groups, um, and this somehow reflected also on the, on the final recommendation. So one of the three recommendations that was not adopted um, in this recommendation uh, number three, uh, which didn't reach 70% threshold, was very close, 68, 69, actually had to do with including minorities in policymaking. Um, and I think this failure to adopt this has to be ascribed to the limited uh, representation of those groups within the group. So it might be too early to judge uh, how sound this methodology is, and we probably need to get much more information, but overall, this system was pretty sound. So, so you, you mentioned the, the recommendation, which was not, not adopted, and if you could uh, um, tell us very briefly which rec recommendations, probably you won't have time, we won't have time to, 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 to discuss all of them, but the most important recommendations that, that, that achieved this, this threshold of 70%. 39 of the 42 achieved the 70%. They are recommendations whose common thread is pretty much linked to the desire of citizens to be more informed about what is happening at the European level, how Europe is affecting their individual daily lives. So we are talking about improving the media sphere, the public sphere, ensuring plurilingual, ensuring um, ensuring uh, plur pluralism, ensuring um, a greater access to information about what decisions and how, how decisions taking at the European level. And overall, there is a call for accountability. Um, so we can feel this. There are proposals that really ask to have independent citizens observers associated to all decision making happening at the European level. Uh, there are calls for providing much more information through the media, but also through InfoDirect and other offices we have all across Europe. There is then another group of recommendations that has to do uh, with uh, gender equality, individual rights, um, which is much more focused on, on the individual and how the individual can uh, basically uh, get better chances at the local, national, and, uh, and the European um, level. Uh, there is a final group of uh, uh, teams in this panel and in this first set of recommendations that has to do with the international institutional reform, um, there are even push for the possibility of having a European constitution. Uh, that's what we have heard and is mentioned. Uh, there is also the call for having more instrument of direct democracy, like a pan-European referendum. Um, there are ideas about Europeanizing the political process uh, through transnationalist and even a push for reducing the number of policy fields in which unanimity is still required, um, but uh, taking care 
also of protecting uh, small member states. So as you can see, there is some awareness, some balance in the way in which proposals that might seem very federalist in nature, in reality are somehow put forward by the citizens, but not necessarily because they are federalist in nature, but just because they realize that the process of socioeconomic interdependence today is just so developed uh, that does not necessarily being caught up by the political one. And they really ask for the political integration to happen at some moment, because this would create some clarity uh, to, to them. And so, so we are talking about the conclusions of one of the four panels, uh, panel number number two. Uh, so the same will happen uh, in the in the other three uh, panels, and then the the uh, the recommendations will go to the plenary, if I'm not not, uh, not mistaken. Uh, so, so can, can we already say what will be the final product, uh, product uh, at least uh, in this, uh, let's say, um, when, the, when, when the conference is scheduled to, to, to end in, in the spring uh, uh, 2022? Can we already uh, say what, what the final product will be or, or is it too early? No, well, there is a timeline and there is a process uh, which might be slightly delayed when it comes to the citizens' panels due to COVID and the next ones. But I would say by early February, uh, it seems quite likely that we're going to get all the recommendations coming from the citizens' panels out. Um, the beauty of the exercise is its transparency and accountability. Yesterday, right after the vote, uh, on Sunday, we had those recommendations published. Uh, we got this in, uh, in on paper as observers and the public who was there. And now they're circulating through, through the internet. They were published by the institutions. Uh, so the recommendations are out. There are, there are all these ideas are floating in the air. And then in parallel, we're gonna have the plenary meeting once in January, once in February, once in March. And during this plenary, some of the so-called ambassadors, the citizens who will be presenting those recommendations. We need to deliberate with the other members of the plenary, basically the politicians, and to hammer down a proposal, a proposal of recommendations, which will then in turn, uh, after March, uh, be sent to the so-called executive board. And the executive board, which represents the three institutions, will have to basically wrap it up and send it uh, to uh, the political level, basically the European Council. Um, what is important to mention in the procedure is that in the plenary, uh, the, you, the consensus is required among the three institutions and the political representatives at the national level, but not necessarily by the citizens. But should uh, those, those proposals of recommendations coming from the plenary depart uh, substantially from the recommendations put forward by the citizens, well, this has to be mentioned in the proposal. So there's a sort of dissenting opinion that can be flagged so that the media and all the observers will notice that the political level is actually taking a distance from the original recommendations. This is the only major guarantee to clarify that these recommendations should have some weight and should stay and stick to the very end of the process. And. Uh... Many people are asking themselves uh, what will be the, the the result of the conference beyond uh, what is what is what is written in the in the in the plan in the, in the, in the official documents. Also, especially after the after the um, the conclusion, the, the, the coalition agreement uh, in, in Germany that mentions both the conference and the treaty change. Uh, 
I, I remember from our last conversation that you stressed the importance of the process and not of the outcome. So, so you, 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 for you, it was not uh, key uh, to, to ch change the treaties, but more to change the, the way political decisions are, are, are being done. Uh, are being made on the on the on the European level. <clears throat> Can I ask you about your opinion now? What what what, what would be, in your opinion, the most important outcome uh, of this mm. conference? Mm. Well, my prediction regarding the 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 outcome of the conference has to do with my own understanding of of this conference. I don't see this conference as necessarily a preparatory process to a treaty change. I rather think of this process as an attempt at creating a new. Uh, temporary transnational opportunity structure for participatory deliberation that might be capable of compensating for the lack of a genuine pan-European political and media space. In other words, the EU is trying to do what it never achieved to do uh, by creating the space for letting citizens identify ideas, solutions that if coming from the bottom up, uh, they will be much more legitimate than if chosen or driven uh, by the institutions uh, or by the member states. Um, so if we accept that this is what we're talking about when discussing the nature of the Conference on the Future of Europe, you will see that the most likely outcome is not necessarily a treaty change or a major policy uh, engagement by the European institutions by changing uh, the current uh, policy program of the von der Leyen Commission, uh, but rather a further deeper reflections about how we can embed into the day-to-day decision-making this way of deliberating with, with citizens. So in my humble opinion, I think the most likely outcome of this conference would be to institutionalize citizens' assembly, uh, or at least a mechanism that may allow the institutions, the citizens, under certain circumstances to convene one or more citizens' assembly as an additional complementary form of legitimation uh, to what the European Union uh, is actually doing today. The question will be then how we're going to design this structure, um, at which uh, stage, if any, of the policy process this citizens' assembly should come in. Should be uh, at the very top, like a agenda setting? Should it be a sort of parallel pre-legislative phase in parallel to the public consultation, you might have citizens' assembly, or you should actually intervene when a proposal from the commission is sent to the parliament and the commission, a sort of deliberative parliamentary working groups, uh, or even ex post, once a European policy is not performing well, allowing the citizens to express their desire for change, for revision. I think all these options are not necessarily mutually exclusive. They can also be, be combined, but they think they finally raise a broader difficult question, which is, what is the real added value we are looking for in institutionalizing a European Citizens' Assembly? Um, is about agenda setting? Is about input legitimacy? Is about output legitimacy? Is about creating greater accountability along the process as many citizens sitting in the panel seem to ask for? I think unless we address this question on what is the rationale for this European Citizens' Assembly, we're not gonna be able to get the right design and to make it fit into the day-to-day -day, um, European institutional architecture. 
So to, to, to me, this, this added value of this uh, assemblies and of the conference is that the citizens who participated in it, uh, participate in it are randomly chosen because this gives us this opportunity to get to the people who are normally not part of the process and are not interested in the EU, for example. Um, so I, I want to ask you, because it seems that there is this kind of, in the air, there is this uh, um, paradigm, paradigm ch change uh, that we, we think that our democracies uh, should be um, could be reformed through through these assemblies where citizens are, are randomly chosen. It's like it seems to to, to be the the, the, um, the another the comeback of the of the old Greek democratic uh, idea. So I wanted to ask you about your thoughts about it. Whether whether this particular element uh, is, is is really so, so important or or they 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 are they could be randomly chosen, but you would see also other options of, uh, of, of how the people who could participate in these assemblies could be chosen. There, there is no doubt that the Conference on the Future of Europe must be situated within a broader, uh, global, historically contingent effort at getting better and more legitimate policy outcomes by involving ordinary citizens in a fuller and more systematic way in the policy process, in particular on the most intractable issues. Um, com the conference is certainly... Uh, one of the many, uh, let's say, actors uh, that actually emerge out of this of this process. Um, this is contingent to an attempt at rejuvenating representative democracy by creating mechanisms that are complementary as opposed to antagonistic uh, to representation. And doing this at the European level seems particularly fitting uh, because Europe is felt far away, uh, is felt not intelligible enough uh, for, for citizens to be part of the process, and therefore the format of mini-public and of sortition seem to somehow address the old conundrum, how we can get people, more representative people, involved in the day-to-day decision-making. Um, it is also part, I would say, of a broader uh, political constellation, which is quite fresh, right? We have a new um, government in Germany on a coalition agreement, that mentioned transnational list, but also mentioned uh, transnational assemblies. It also mentioned the possibility of setting up a, a German citizens assembly on a permanent basis. Uh, we also see the French experience already having two citizens assembly. We see a lot of signs also from the other two countries that belong to this core of pro-European governments like in Spain and in Italy for having these kind of experiences. So overall, I think it will be relatively easy to gather some consensus across Europe for embedding a European Citizens Assembly into the European decision making and into the actual uh, European architecture. So if, if I now may ask you the last question uh, on the uh, number of citizens in, involved, because th this is one of the most standard critics of the, of the conference not totally illegitimate. Not many Europeans know about the conference, not many Europeans uh, uh, registered on the, on the platform. And it, it, it seems that the, the conference didn't uh, awaken huge interest. Do you think that, that it destroys the legitimacy of the, of the results of the conference? I think it is a legitimate question that has to be unpacked further uh, as we go along with this conference on the future of Europe, which is just midway, right? There's no doubt that we haven't assisted a constitutional moment. We don't see millions of people on the European platform. We don't see media attention. There were only 58 journalists 
uh, at the EY panel, probably the most important one. We got a high record number of presents, but 58, and certainly not the mostly uh, notable correspondents in Brussels made the effort to come to Florence. This is a problem in, in itself, but at the same time, I think the current mechanism, that of relying on sortition and having these 800 citizens there somehow compensate for this lack of mobilization across the European Union, because their stories are pretty powerful. These are people that are pretty similar to the people existing across Europe and representative of different cohorts uh, up to a certain extent, and certainly more than in, in the past. Will this be enough to offset uh, the lack of representation and involvement of citizens at the level of the uh, platform when we know that at the end of the day in the plenary we have our national and European representatives sitting there so we have political representations in a way we see some competing claims of representation uh, the ordinary citizens being sorted out uh, and at the same time the political leaders at the national and the European level the challenge would be to make sure that these competing uh, representative claims would be able to stay together and to merge and to come up with a process that will be owned and co-owned by all these uh, entities and, and, and actors. And for this, again, the jury is still out. We need to see whether finally the national political classes through also some national uh, deliberative processes which are ongoing will be somehow position, positioning themselves on the process and in particular on the recommendations. Uh, my final claim is that it would be impossible for both the national and the European political processes not to position themselves on those recommendations. And this will be the key moment. This will be the moment in which this process will become the process affecting all European citizens because these ideas will be basically shaping up national political programs, the next European parliamentary elections, the next political agendas of the different European political groups. This would be somehow unavoidable. Uh, incontournable, as they say in France. The conference will become this huge elephant in the room that at some point uh, will speak out and will be impossible to avoid. And this is going to happen by the end of spring with the European, uh, with the presidential elections overlapping uh, with the French presidency, uh, with the elections in Hungary, May, June, uh, with the elections happening uh, in a few other countries, and in those national competitions, the conference and those ideas will certainly be a part of the game. I already see this happening in France with the French uh, presidentials. We see all these opponents uh, to the incumbent president Macron who are positioning themselves in Europe. So Europe will become the team uh, of the next uh, French uh, elections in a way which is totally unprecedented. And the conference will be the major uh, space in which that conversation is going to happen and uh, in different terms will probably happen the same in Hungary. It seems then that we will have a very important European spring uh, and uh, that many important issues uh, uh, will be very very faithful for the, for the future of Europe. So I very much hope that we, we will be able to invite you then to discuss both about the results of the conference and about the the political implications of, of, of the conference. Um, we are very grateful that you agreed to, to, to talk with us uh, today. Um, and, and, and let's hope that we'll have, be able to continue this, this conversation in the, in the next months. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Alberto. Thank you.